companies to healthcare providers and fast food services, organizations are deploying AI technologies to boost productivity and improve service. As these technologies filter into the economy and workplace, a host of questions are arising. Will AI replace human labor? How will new technology affect the nature of work? How can we equip workers for the future and help them adapt to change? In their recent book, Working with AI, Real Stories of Human-Machine Collaboration, management and technology experts Tom Davenport and Stephen Miller explore these questions through real-world case studies. Pushing back against the growing anxiety over AI's impact on work, Davenport and Miller contend that AI will not be a job destroyer, but a job enhancer, a tool that will largely make work better not only more productive, but also more fulfilling and even more accessible for most workers. In this episode, Davenport and Miller join Brent to discuss their book, offering a vision of the future of work in which AI and other smart technologies complement human labor and make us richer and more productive in the process. Thomas Davenport and Stephen Miller, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. I'd like to start uh, my podcast by asking guests about their own background and sort of um, so it's the, the team that we um, that we work on here is called vocation career and work. And I'm really interested in vocational questions about how people um, sort of find their way in the professional world, uh, try to trace back a little bit um, in terms of, you know, who were the major influences in your life, in your lives, uh, and um, and how you wound up doing the things that you do in life. So, um, Stephen, why don't we start with you? Uh, talk, tell, tell the audience just a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are. I've uh, been living in Singapore 23 years. For 20 and a half of those years, I've been with Singapore Management University, which only started in the year 2000. I joined them in year 2002, and I was the founding dean of what is now called the School of Computing and Information Systems. And through that, have gotten very involved with Singapore government, industry, uh, the civil sector of society, and have done a lot with the application and deployment of analytics, AI, cybersecurity, software engineering, intelligent systems, a wide range of things uh, related to uh, business and organizational applications of IT for new ways of working. And in short, uh, I did my doctorate at Carnegie Mellon looking at the applications of the then computer-controlled uh, robotics and AI-based systems in the early 80s and spent a lot of time doing field work in uh, factories, uh, in offices, and then worked at Carnegie Mellon as faculty and then went into industry to work as a practicing manufacturing engineer and uh, manager of manufacturing engineering and then worked in consulting uh, for tools to help frontline workers better make use of technology, came to Singapore to work for IBM Consulting and e-business in the year 2000, and then created an IT school that was in the middle of a business school IS program that studied managerial impacts of IS versus a computer science program. We were really a software engineering-based program dealing with applications of uh, software and digital technology. And that one thing led to the other. And I had an incredible privilege um, starting in late 2019 to team up with Tom on the Working with AI book. He had the original idea to do a book in that topic. And uh, just that theme greatly appealed to me. And that's what led to the partnership for the book. So when you look back at your at your life and you think about your, about Stephen Miller, the teenager, uh, what were the first signs that this uh, area of um, uh, manufacturing, engineering, and computer science might be your future? It was a completely nonlinear. Uh, <laughs> it was a change because when I went to boarding school. Uh, I concentrated in visual arts, 
uh, social studies, liberal arts, political science. And it was through German Bauhaus artists that I actually got interested in technology as part of the expressive arts. And then when I went to the University of Pennsylvania, I went against the grain. I was the one liberal arts student who transferred into the engineering school and had to make up a lot of courses. So none of that was in the teenage years. Mm. And I actually, from the liberal arts and the visual arts, got interested in applications of technology. So sort of a non-conventional path. Uh, it, yeah, I would say, I would say it's a little more conventional than you might think it is. Uh, I, I hear that story or similar stories often from people who wind up in the technology field. Um, they start out in history or uh, the arts or uh, something like that. And uh, so it's, it's always fascinating to me. How about you, Tom? Tell us about your journey. Sure. Uh, I should point out that Steve's LinkedIn page says he majored in creative pranks in high school. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so I... Um, was originally trained as a sociologist and I had various mentors one professor in particular, Richard Mahalik, told me that I could become a, a academic sociologist and which he was. And um, so I, um, I kind of bounced around a series of um, institutions of lower and um, not so higher learning. And um, I figured out, I'd not been told that some schools were better than others by my high school guidance counselor who suggested I become a forest ranger because I like to read and you have plenty of time to read as a forest ranger. <laughs> so um, anyway, I went straight from undergrad to Harvard uh, um, and studied sociology and um, Probably the most influential activity that I did in graduate school, I had a great advisor, Jim Davis, who really believed in clear statistical thinking and writing. Um, but I ended up um, becoming an advisor to um, social and behavioral sciences students and faculty when they did their computing, their research computing. And so over time, I got I'd say maybe less and less interested in sociology and more and more interested in computing. And I became, I was a manager at Harvard Computing Center for a while. And then I decided ah, I was really interested in consulting, but I needed a, um, uh, I thought I needed a different degree. So I was going to get an MBA, even though I already had a PhD from Harvard, the business school did um, not let me in. They rejected me, but I was all set to go to MIT. And um, it's one of many times Harvard has rejected me and then brought me back in some capacity. But um, uh, I got this job in a consulting firm that did IT strategy. And I said, forget it. I'm not going to business school. And um, so since then, I've gone back and forth between business schools and consulting firms and sometimes did a bit of both at the same time. Um, but like Steve, I'm very focused on how organizations use information and technology and maybe try to address it a bit from a human um, perspective since I'm a sociologist by, by training. Terrific. Uh, that's, uh, you sound like you had one of the worst guidance counselors ever um, with the, uh, be, become a, not that there's anything wrong with becoming a, a forest ranger, but because you love to read is not really a, uh, a rationale. Um, so let's, where were you when I needed that advice? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's, uh, let's get into the book. This is organized, uh, in part around case studies. And I, I'd like, um, I'd like you to either one of you, both of you to talk about one or two of the case studies that you did um, uh, that you found especially memorable or you think are particularly illustrative about uh, of AI's impact uh, on the workforce. So why don't we start with you, Tom? We'll let you go. Okay. Well, I'll start 
um, with the first one that I did, which was uh, life insurance underwriting, maybe not the most exciting um, uh, case, but one that got got me quite drawn into the topic. This was a branch of a large insurance company, Mass Mutual, and they were starting up a new business unit to to um, offer term life insurance much less expensively and with less difficulty to you know, get a policy. And so you had this underwriter who um, was using AI on a daily basis to um, make most of the decisions in the policy underwriting process, but not all of them. And what it made me realize that um, was that AI was often going to make the easy decisions and the hard decisions were going to be left for humans. And um, also that if you were going to do these jobs working alongside AI, you really needed a kind of a social um, ecosystem to both talk about how it was, how the AI was working and improve it, but also um, to give you some semblance of a social life. If you're sitting at home, this was pre-COVID, but this woman was sitting at home um, going through computer screens all day long. And she said, it's fantastic that they have a weekly meeting with the team, both the other underwriters, um, uh, digital underwriters, as they're called, and also the team that was um, supporting the AI system that they used. And um, like almost everybody else we talked to, she thought that even though AI was kind of eating away at the margins of underwriting decisions, that there would always be a need for human underwriters. So I don't know if all of our case study subjects were just whistling past the graveyard, but um, they were not generally concerned about what this was going to do to human employment. So that's interesting. I mean, uh, it, it, you always need an asterisk next to AI will never um uh it, it's very very difficult to tell what it might be able to do uh in the future but I, i'm curious about if you could go into a bit more detail about what what kinds of decisions um were the underwriters saying uh, like this is going to this is this will be reserved for humans well i, I was talking about this last night because we had a um a visitor at um, our house who had an upset stomach and um, my wife um, prescribed for her, even though she's not a doctor, um, a drug that she takes for that called Ondansetron. And I remember the underwriter said um, decisions, you know, in the United States, I, hopefully this isn't true in Singapore as well, but in the United States, insurance companies get all of your prescription information. And so if a woman is prescribed on Dancitron, it generally means not the reasons my wife takes it um, for casual um, stomach upset, I'd say, but um, two reasons. One, um, chemotherapy related nausea for cancer and um, the other pregnancy related. And if you're a life insurance company, um, you are not as quite as inclined to offer an insurance policy to someone who's had cancer, particularly if they haven't told you about it. So it was um, this woman's job to try to figure out, was she prescribed it for pregnancy or for cancer? Um, the system could see she was prescribed on Densitron, um, but it couldn't make that um, mm. determination. Mm -hmm. So that's one example of the kind of hard decisions. And I guess the other one is just trying to figure out is the applicant being truthful mm. or not mm. about their medical history? And was there something in the medical history that um, didn't seem like it, you know, corresponded with reality? So maybe AI is not so great at lie detection. Uh, Not yet, anyway, yeah, but as you say, yeah. you always have to put that asterisk there. Yeah. I was writing a little thing this week, uh, or last week maybe, about um, uh, job loss issues, and um, I read, I, I, I used almost the, the one of the next to last sections from our book saying, you know, in general, we don't think um, job loss is going to be a big issue. 
but our last section in the last chapter was entitled come the singularity all bets are off <laughs> mm, mm, no i i think that's right so uh steven how about you what what uh what which of the stories particularly jumps out for you well so tom gave a good example of um one of a number of stories where even though it was particular to that industry and that task, if you abstract some, and it's an example of production work, all right, where no two cases being submitted are exactly the same, but there's a lot of regularity in the flow of cases coming through and the nature of the uh, trans, uh, evaluation that has to be done. You need to transact it with certain kinds of judgment within a structured way. So rather than cite other examples, because we had a number of examples in the book that would fit that category, even if they were in a different industry of the slightly different kind of task. I'm going to mention two stories that are illustrative of complementary jobs that have to be created as companies are doing more and more with their AI-enabled portfolios, moving beyond projects here and there to you know, a fairly sustained ongoing effort uh, of a wide range of uh, AI projects across the uh, company. So one was Salesforce. And of course, they're well known for uh, combining analytics even before the uh, current AI wave. Um, and they were always strong in analytics. And then they've been early into using, you know, the evolving application of so-called uh, AI methods and quite progressive on that. But the story we did on Salesforce was not about the people who developed the AI applications. It was about a small team that was architecting responsible AI practices. All right. And what's Interesting about this is, of course, it's easy to say we should have responsible AI practices and it's easy to have the philosophy. All right. They were quite purposeful, quite intentional and quite effective on how a relatively small team of people would um, identify how we take the concepts of responsible AI and then make this operable and scalable so that production engineers working on projects could say, how would this apply to me? Now, obviously a small team can't go sit with all the Salesforce application engineers working on all the sort of new modules that they're doing or with Salesforce customers who might have such questions. But what they would do is they would identify good frameworks, uh, one that they may have moved beyond, but they were using in the earlier days of doing this as of, let's say, two years ago, was uh, the model card framework that uh, Google had developed, which in simplistic language is something like the nutrition label for how an AI model works, right? Um, and they made the emphasis that you can't just have principles, you've got to make it so that people working on specific projects, specific geographies, specific applications can contextualize it and say, how does this apply to me? So we, Tom and I liked the way that this small number of people, which was especially interesting, could create structure, create a framework, go beyond just proselytizing and advocacy and get hundreds if not thousands of others on board with practices pointing in the direction of what they consider to be more responsible AI. So I like that example of complementarity. And the other one Tom will be very familiar with is an e-commerce firm called Shopee. They're like any other e-commerce firm, nothing exceptional there. They just happen to be very prominent in the Southeast Asian market. And, you know, the obvious part, they're, they're using AI modules, capabilities, products for about everything you can think of in the context of back-end things on e-commerce, business to consumer, business to business, et cetera. 
Uh, our story focused on the product manager, the role of the product manager in, now I'm going to come and I'm going to give a footnote on product manager because there's sort of two levels of product managers of which we only dealt with one. But um, I'm doing something to make it easier for a seller who wants to post to do certain services. You know, for example, well, uh, classical product management like things are how are we scoping the functionality? How do we pull together all of the data that we need to do the training? What are the first country in which we do the piloting? Um, we think of market segmentation in terms of who to sell to, but the product manager for an AI enabled capability has to do another kind of segmentation, which is who is the subset, the segmentation of customers who are going to be more likely to be open to testing the early generation of this product so we can, or this new AI enabled capability, so we can get on the path to the learning curve. So um, the more of these AI enabled services you do, you still have to have uh, product managers around to do the kinds of things like I mentioned. Now, there's a different kind of product manager or yet another kind of product manager that we did not get into that Tom's quite familiar with and has highlighted in some of his other work where you're building platforms that make it easier to productionize the process of rolling out yet another AI-enabled business-driven product. And in that sense, it, it's a product manager one level down in the stack uh, that's creating platform capabilities. We're talking about the product manager that's really taking a business-driven need to a particular market that happens to have AI enablement as a critical part of the, the product feature set. And it depends on the fact that the uh, company already putting in place the platforms where you know, they can do each of these things and it's not a unique bespoke development project. So again, I, 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 the complementarity of new kinds of jobs that have to be happening more of as we do more of the things mm -hmm. that focus on the production and the transaction work. I want to go back to your the the first part of your answer about, um, and either of you can respond to this. But you talked about, uh, you know, needing um, uh, guidelines for use. I can't remember the exact term you used, but that were operable and scalable. And I'm curious if you've given any thought, based on what you've learned here, uh, uh, in the in the practical side of things about how that learning applies to broader regulatory questions. Um, because of course, that's where everybody's head is right now is how are we going to regulate AI? May I defer to my senior? Tom, any thoughts on this one? <laughs> um, well, I think um, there certainly are some um, easy to identify possibilities. Um, easy to identify, less easy to implement. But um, there is, I think, a desire on the part of many people involved in AI to have some degree of transparency about how it works. And so um, some of the companies that I've worked with have said, uh, for example, um, any decision that it affects um, a human being um, with which we interact, whether it's an employee or a customer, um, uh, there has to be some transparency in how that decision is made because we're going to have to, um, we may have to explain it. And that is embedded in some of the European legislation. Um, I don't think it's in um, any U.S. legislation yet, as you know, the U.S. is rather slow to the to the party on regulation. But transparency is one factor. Um, uh, if there is um, a any sort of um, algorithmic bias, um, as Steve said, that's um, you hope that would be explained in the model card. If there is one, you know, I think maybe we should mandate model cards for 
every algorithm and um, it would have identified any bias that they had recognized as they were developing the model. You know, I think almost all um, AI models have some degree of bias because they're trained on past data and past data has bias. Um, and sometimes the bias is intentional, you know, going back to insurance, um, you know, we um, want to insure the most healthy customers. <laughs> uh, we want to um, charge a little more for people who are going to live a long time. So if you're a woman, you're um, out of luck. <laughs> you have to pay more for your insurance or your life insurance in many cases. So, um, but I think we should reveal those biases whenever we can. Um, it's not made any easier by the complexity of today's um, deep learning and generative models and so on, which often involve, you know, um, literally billions of parameters. Um, but I think before we use it to make important decisions, we need to have that transparency and clarity about what the biases are. Yeah, I, I guess for me, it's a little hard to know what are the important decisions uh, because any any action through an algorithm, especially as it starts relating to other algorithms, could turn out to be important. Um, it could turn out to have an impact in yes. unforeseen impacts, basically. Brent, let me make uh, two points. One is uh, it's in sort of today's media discussions that we we want to worry about bias and uh, without going into the technical meaning of what bias is, because bias in a technical definition is not always bad. It just means a certain kind of um, targeted sample or limited sample or systematically often known target, right? Uh, and often it's used without people explaining it as sort of a code word for non-desirable types of social discrimination, right? Which is one possible aspect of bias. But it's important that people pay equal attention to the big idea that came out of that book called Noise by Daniel Kahneman, uh, Cass Sunstein, and Oliver Siboney, that when we do insurance processing, when we do certain kinds of medical diagnostics, when the courts do certain types of dispositions of cases, when zoning professionals handle cases. Uh, the other pernicious problem is that there is variability that's undesirable. And the only way to rein that in is through some approach to algorithmic decision making. So it's not fair to only talk about bias without also considering there's actually a lot of socially undesirable impacts of um, unwanted variation without having some kind of systematic approach to decision making. So people should pay attention to that noise book without de-emphasizing mm -hmm. the importance of um, the other types of errors related to bias. So that's I, one point. I think that's really a terrific point. Um, and I, we've seen this, in, I mean, we see it all the time in these, you know, Bing or Claude or uh, ChatGPT4, whatever you're using, you ask the, um, the same question twice, you're going to get two very different answers often. Right. Uh, so there's this natural variability that you're talking about, like, and really no explanation. Uh, for why that variability is occurring. And yeah, and I don't think there could be because it's it's put there intentionally um, to try to, you know, give some creativity to the response. But given the number of parameters, uh, um, I think it's impossible to figure out where did that where did that difference originate? At least now it's impossible. Right. And, and as Tom just hinted at, there are certain kinds of queries where you want a little randomness in the response to seed yet another take on something. And there are some kinds of inquiries where for a given input, there should always be the same output. So that, that sort of gets into the nuance. Now, the other aspect I was going to make, uh, maybe it's living in Asia for 23 years in Singapore, plus a few prior years in Japan. 
this notion of getting comfortable with the coexistence of opposing dynamic forces. And we often think regulation versus innovation. All right. Now, Singapore's approach to so many things are not necessarily easy to replicate because it's a city state and the federal, the provincial, the, pre, uh, the city are all one system. The same party has been in power for a long time. They have a remarkably well-trained civil service, always forward planning. In uh, the monetary and banking and financial service realm and in the Infocom realm, the same overall ministry that's responsible for industry development is also responsible for regulation. Now, it's not the same person, although eventually it feeds up to the same most senior people, but they have groups that are focused on regulation. They have groups that are focused on industry development because unless we're preparing for changes in the economy, the forthcoming economy, the future economy, the economic viability uh, goes down. And with, without that, there's serious troubles, right? So how do you co-steer and move away from the regulation? Any regulation is going to tamp down innovation. You know, we have to have unfettered innovation and figure out how to co-design. Now, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in regulation, but I think anybody can understand there was a day when automobiles did not have very good brakes and the process of braking an automobile was very cumbersome. And by putting better brakes on automobiles, interestingly enough, it was able to build automobiles that could go faster. And it's an example of an expression that's sort of interesting, safe to speed. You know, you, you had to have certain kinds of safety protocols built in, which of course were driven by regulation in order to really rev this thing up and have it get more powerful. Mm. So uh, I'm sure various countries around the world have approaches where it isn't the people on this side of the room versus the people on this side of the room. And it's a tug of war approach. And we move to a co-design approach. And where can regulation actually let us uh, do more, right? Uh, so I'll just leave it at that and try to change the framing of the argument. I think that's uh, <clears throat> that's uh, not something that I've heard anybody talk about. And I think that's in large part because the resources within government for understanding AI are so limited uh, that this idea of co-design uh, just isn't it, it, it's several uh, orders of magnitude away from what uh, the already diminished capacity of the federal government is f it, to have that conversation. It doesn't sound like something in in the U.S. where it's it would it would be kind of a viable concept. I mean, what you would need is well, well let me let me just finish. But, it, but what you would need is co-designing within firms where you've got firm, uh, you know. Uh, representatives of the regulatory mindset working with the engineers, because I don't think, I mean, it's just the country's too big. You know, we, uh, there's no, there, and the economy is too large to effectively do a government business co-design. Mm. And, 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 well, and they, have, they, they have much, um, I think part of the culture in Singapore is that highly educated, highly capable people go into government, which is not generally the case in, I mean, there clearly are exceptions mm -hmm. in the U.S., but it's not the rule. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, that's a good bridge to the next question I wanted to ask, which uh, is around um, where either or both, I don't know if you have a shared uh, view on this or not, but um we are caught right now um, in the AI discussion between the uh, the millennialists of you know that this is about to usher in the golden age, 
and those who um, want to prepare for airstrikes on data centers um, if, if needed to um, prevent AI from killing all of us. So th- those are the two extremes. I'd like to hear where you guys are on that, uh, on that spectrum. Um, I'm still optimistic. Um, I never really was concerned about um, killer robots um, uh, murdering all of us. I'm still not concerned about that. I think that's um, certainly a vastly overrated concern right now. Um, I do um, worry that, you know, we have this huge industry that is largely unregulated at all and is um, kind of amusingly saying, please um, save us from ourselves, regulate us. Um, uh, but it, it refuses to regulate itself very much. I mean, some companies more than others, clearly. Um, so um, I, I am still largely optimistic about what AI can do to humankind, do to and for humankind. But I do think there are some concerns that need to be addressed, not so much murder um, anytime soon or um, you know, mass termination of the human race, but um, certainly issues related to jobs and um, uh, day-to-day life that I think ought to be addressed. So Brent, my, my first point is, even if we go back a few years before the launch of these large language models and what we're calling generative AI and you know the whole wildfire spread of things based on that, we have many decades of experience with technology change where we see new waves of technology come in, uh, computerization, digital, mobile, And what happens is it's not technology per se or only in isolation that results in job loss, but we've gone through multiple waves where a combination of the ability to increasingly automate as well as augment, but let me focus on the automate part, which is taking the human labor out of the task. Um, In combination with changes in preferences, changing in demographics, changing in trade patterns, right, result in uh, certain sectors and certain regions losing employment. When I was in graduate school at Carnegie Mellon, that was happening to the steel industry, right? Uh, AI was not the reason that was happening, and still a lot of factories were being shut down and people were losing jobs. So are we going to have continued waves of that? Of course. The fact that we have more capable uh, machine-based systems, hardware and software, that can extend the range of tasks that can be automated, that will contribute to that, but it won't be the only factor why we have that. So where, where I've evolved on this is, even though some things happening in AI are new, things that drive change in the economy, there are a few basics that are still there. And it's the word productivity and it's the word innovation. All right. So here's a simplification of those two concepts. And I'm not a professional economist, but relative to the deployment of these technologies, I think this conceptualization helps. When we think of productivity, we think of driving efficiency. And when we think of driving efficiency, the implied mental model that people don't make explicit, but which is almost always what's driving the thinking, is we're thinking about driving the efficiency of existing work. Work we're already familiar with, work that's already there, it's already familiar enough where we know we need to bother to scale it and invest in scaling it, right? And we're familiar enough with it, and we sort of know the even with more capable AI, we sort of know the range in which the the work operates so we can really lean in and in fact automate it. I'm not against that. 
because I think where we can improve productivity, we have an obligation to. And in my view, that's another aspect of responsible AI, because we know how productivity fits into the equation of um, economic growth. Now, if we only stop there, if we only focused on productivity as focused on driving the efficiency of existing work, it would be problematic. So the key is we need to create new work. It's harder for people to think about new work because it's you, you can't conjure up the scenarios as easily as you can think about, let's take the labor out of some thing like insurance underwriting where we're already familiar with the transaction flow, okay? So two of the jobs I mentioned to you were examples of new work, all right? An electrician that does house wiring is existing work, but an electrician who installs solar panels on rooftops is new work, right? So we've got to get people putting equal emphasis on taking the freed up capacity from the productivity dividend of automating existing work and move it over into exploration, experimentation, collaboration, the things that are required to create new services. And I can't prove this, but I think it turns out to be true that newer services within the first years, if not the first decades, tend to be labor intensive. And they're, they're great opportunities for getting people employed and redeployed. So just like we need the co-design of regulation and what can we do with innovation, we need the co-design of um, driving productivity because it frees up resources, right? And recycling effort within the company, because people always say, I don't have enough headcount to do the exploratory yeah. stuff, to do the exploratory stuff, because like a lot of companies will testify uh, over periods of years and decades, it's the new products and services that are bringing in the revenue. And they also create the new kinds of jobs. Yeah, I think that that, uh, I think that is a really great, a summary of uh, what I see already happening in my own work, which is it the AI tools are creating more space to try to do new things um, and and tools for doing those new things. Um, and I, if it's happening for me, I think it's going. <laughs> you know, I'm in the you know very focused knowledge sector job that, um, but. If that happens, it, you know, with a little bit of intention, you have to try, uh, but it it really begins to free up mental space and it frees up time um, to think about what else, what else, now what else can I do uh, and sort of, um, uh, you know, puts puts to bed the lump of labor fallacy that, you know, there's it, it's just like these eight hours and and uh, if you're not, you know, doing what you do for eight hours, then you don't have anything to do. And it's like, no, you you start looking around for other things um, to do. I'm curious if either of you looked at this recent study um, out of Europe where they were looking at early AI implementation. Uh, and um, they found that... Uh, it actually increased the labor shares, uh, particularly for people at the more highly skilled end. It didn't have a negative effect at the lower end of or the lower end of the distribution, but at the higher end, the labor shares grew as a res uh, it, as a result of implementation of AI, uh, uh, and that that really uh, sort of cuts against what we think of, you know, in terms of how this is going to affect even these knowledge workers who were told, we are told, uh, you know, they're the ones who are really on the, um, on the, on the chopping block. Uh, uh, did either of you see that study? I did not, but there was a similar study um, in uh, based in the U.S. from U.S. academics coming, um, actually published by OpenAI, 
from one of the early adopters of um, generative AI for customer service applications. And it, you may have seen that yeah. it, it found that um, the biggest benefit was to entry level people. They learned much faster on the job right. using generative AI, but everybody benefited. So um, both sounds like they're both sort of optimistic in that sense. Yeah, no, that, yeah. that study by the one you're referring to by Eric Brynholson at, at Stanford um, was very encouraging on a number of fronts, uh, including, I think, the potential for helping people with cognitive disabilities um, uh, to do better interpersonal uh, uh, work, right? Uh, that was That's what we saw. That's what you see in that study is that people who are less skilled at kind of managing difficult interpersonal interactions with customers all of a sudden got a lot better. Uh, and when we're talking about people with autism or Asperger's who had difficulty reading and interpreting social cues, I mean, that one really took me by surprise, actually, was like this is like a, almost like a, a robot for the mind you know, that's going to an assistive technology for the mind, uh, for human minds to get better and stronger. So, yeah, I, I thought that was bring your own robot to work. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. I've got <laughs> this, I've got this external brain external now that's brain going to, now that's going to take on some of these tasks. Brent, let me make a comment. Uh, it, it, some of this comes from things I've looked at and some from talking with Tom and even uh, reading some of the stories he's done by uh, uh, other companies and benefiting from his interviews. Um, there are companies who it's a it's a small number and it's a minority, but they really have spent the last decade putting the underlying processes and administration, data management, data pipelines, both the physical aspects required, as well as everything administrative and work process to, to have these um, almost AI product factories. And they're not selling AI products, they're selling financial services, or they're selling some other line, something to do with aircraft engine maintenance, or you know whatever it might be, or car insurance. And for these kind of companies where they've gone through the digital transformation and put many layers of the both physical and um, work process and administrative uh, infrastructure stack there, the, the ability to bring in generative AI and use it in two ways. One is to do things that you can only do with what we're calling generative AI or only do them to a good enough level or economically viable. And remember, you know, Tom's an expert on these kinds of things, the good old fashioned uh, descriptive analytics, diagnostic analytics, uh, predictive analytics, and optimization and planning based prescriptive analytics is not going away. It's the bread and butter of, a, of what needs to be done in a, in a lot of company settings. But generative AI can be a front end to this and simplify the process of doing this. So in these kind of environments, it may well be possible to move faster than we've seen over the last few years or last decade, only because they've put so much in place to build on top of. And there are companies who are putting quotas for getting the generative AI based use cases out there within the company and to get that labor count down. All right. And, you know, in addition, they'll, they'll drive new products and services too, but for companies much earlier in the journey, and they haven't put the five, seven, 10 years into uh, really getting this digital transformation machine going throughout every part of their enterprise, it's going to be a slow transformation process. Mm. Even though an individual can get on and you know use uh, one of these LLMs very quickly, or you can do it with a cloud service, the more impact you want to have, the deeper you got to interconnect administratively and process-wise across the company. 
And unless you've been doing that, that just doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I, yeah I think that's absolutely right. I think that uh, I was asked at an, an event a couple of weeks ago about, you know, how, how quickly is this going to happen? And I said, well, I think it's going to feel uh, very slow uh, in, in real time as it's happening. And then I think in 30 years, we'll look back and say, wow, that really happened fast, you know, because that the perception of all that work that has to be done to integrate the technology into business processes, that's a ton of work um, that we haven't even like, we've got these kind of fun new toys right now, but but the real value of them is how they get used uh, as companies redesign the way that they do their work to incorporate the new technology. That takes time and money and effort. Um, and I, so I, I agree. I think it's going for, for current workers. Uh, uh, it's, it's not going to be the kind of dramatic uh, change that, that some fear. <laughs> But that will be true for a lot of firms. I'm going to give an advertisement to the book did, that Tom did. I had no involvement in it. Tom did this after we did the Working with AI book, his all-in on AI book. And those firms are going to move fast. Those firms are not going to take five years. Mm-hmm. I can't say this authoritatively. It's better for Tom to comment. But they, they've put so much of the enablement in place. I... I would predict, let's hear Tom's comment, that there are going to be a small set of firms that will move very quickly on this. And the question is, how powerful will those firms move as they can amplify their advantage? Tom? Yeah, I mean, one, um, we're both very familiar with DBS Bank, which was featured in um, our Working with AI book and the only company to be featured in two different cases and also a case example in um, All In on AI. And uh, I had some conversations recently with them and they are moving very fast on generative AI and creating internal knowledge bases using it and trying to think about how they use it with customers quite early on. So um, the majority, I saw this a little survey yesterday from VentureBeat suggesting that um, 52% were experimenting, but only 19% were even trying to put it into production deployment. This is generative AI and only 19% expected to spend more on it, you know, other than their a few $20 a month mm-hmm. <laughs> ch- uh, ch- GP- GPT plus licenses. Um, but um, yeah, some companies are are moving out there in a big way, and I I think, you know, we'll, the rich will get richer in that mm-hmm. in that regard. Yeah. So, um, exit question for for this conversation: um, the AI is creating a lot of uncertainty uh, about what the future of work is, uh, and um, I'm I'm in agreement with you that. Uh, there's not going to be any shortage of things for human beings to do um, as a result of AI, but we don't have, we have less idea of what those things are maybe than we had uh, five, 10 years ago. Um, And I'm curious, what's your advice um, to young people who are preparing, um, uh, either making educational decisions or early career decisions or what's your and what's your advice for incumbent workers, you know, who are looking at work environments where, you know, things are changing and they could start changing um, quickly, depending on where they are in the economy. So both of those questions, like for future workers, what how do you think people should prepare? And then what should people who are already in the workforce be thinking about? Not surprisingly, I'd say you should try to work with AI mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because um, it will make you more productive. It will probably even make you more innovative if you, you know, use it as a um, idea generation um, helper. And the people who have its capabilities will 
perform better than those who don't. Um, I think, you know, tools like generative AI are changing some of the previous advice we would give to people in um, high school and even elementary school that they need to learn to code or, um, you know, they need to learn a particular programming language. I think a lot of that is going to be generated based on pure English um, requests. Um, but still, I think, you know, being digitally literate and being data literate is not going to go away. That's going to help you frame the problem and provide much better prompts, if you will, um, than if you don't have a, a clue about that sort of thing. So work with AI, work with data, um, uh, understand uh, a little bit about probability and statistics and, um, you know, think about how it fits into your own um, life and, and desire for a career. How about you, Stephen? Anything? Uh, I'm going to elaborate on Tom's theme and independently I had a similar thought but using a slightly different vocabulary. And for both the student and the mid-career person, the, the word I'm going to emphasize is amplify. Get your hands on tools that isn't just, well, gee, I'm touching this stuff, using it. I can amplify. I can do what I did faster. I can do things I couldn't do. You've got to drive yourself to augment, right? And, um, you know, the people who are the specialists who are designing the new kinds of um, the various types of AI models, not those language models, because there's other kind of important models that you still have to do. They'll always have a role, all right? But the uh, people in all kinds of other domains, um, how to amplify. So there's no point fighting it. That's a losing battle. Uh, there's no point running from it and learn how to not just touch it, but whether you go the productivity route or the innovation route, you know, do it. Now, the other thing that I, I think it's important is um, this stuff, especially the large language model stuff, is seductive. You know, when we built prediction models based on structured data, uh, okay, we measure the accuracy and everybody knows they're imperfect, but if they're good enough to help with predictions, we do them. But we, we, we always have a guarded sense that there's always error. And with the language models, because language being the human interface, if you will, whatever that language is, we let our guard down. It's seductive. We, we, we have a language input, we get a language output, and not everyone is careful as they should be about, do I believe this? Is it true? Can I verify? Mm -hmm. And the same with when we get code back. Okay. So the notion of I'm still accountable. Somebody's wow. accountable. I can use all the super tools I want. I can do it in a tenth of time. But if this screws up, it's my head on the block. Mm -hmm. And in an interesting way, the basics of quality control, plan, do, check, act at the individual task level, sort of the team level and the increasingly large enterprise process level have never been more important. I think that is a phenomenal uh, point and a great place to end this conversation. Uh, th these are tools. They are not uh, there. They they feel like magic to us, but they aren't. They are tools, and we we are responsible for how we use them uh, and um, and and what we get out of them. So, um, Steve, uh, Tom, thank you so much for your time uh, this morning. Uh, to talk with us about this. Congratulations on the book. It's fascinating. I recommend everybody get it. Uh, and we will include um, uh, links to it in the show notes. And uh, I look forward to staying in touch with you. Um, Steve, it'll be easier when, once you're back um, on in, in our time zone. Uh, and uh, look forward to chatting with both of you um, uh, as this new era kind of unfolds in front of us. It's a, it's a fascinating time. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.